Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by Neela, Illinois. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. Amit, where are you Zooming in from today? I'm in London right now. So it's nice to do this abroad. That's the great thing about Zoom and virtual technology. We can record these anywhere. We can. One of us has to be in front of our mics with, with good audio. Or <laughs> we'll get really mad at us, but we got away yeah. with the last time Amit was remote. So we're hoping we can do it again. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm in town for a conference. I'm excited to be able to record and get some work stuff done, too. I have one minor correction on our first David Lee, Ask David Lee episode. I got some guff from one of our question askers. Good, good-natured ribbing. I gave Jerry Bramwell a hard time for saying that dealing with difficult opposing counsel must have been a Jerry question. And Jerry was very quick to write to us and say that is not the case. He loves when he gets a difficult opponent. And Rule 36 requests to admit are Jerry's favorite weapon of choice, or one of them anyway. And he sent me a really nice article he wrote on it. So I'll plug That's Jerry. awesome. So I'm going to plug Jerry and give him credit for that and say, look up the, the good article that Jerry wrote on, on RTAs and effectively deploying them in litigation. And, and Jerry is well-versed on how to deal with chucklehead uh, opposing counsel who doesn't want to participate. What? <laughs> That's also a good segue. I mean, we're going to talk about arbitration today. We should have just had Jerry come on and have that conversation with us. We should have. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Jerry, if you're listening. But, but we should, that would have required you and I to be way more organized sure. and well-prepared than we are. Yeah. And actually, last time I was remote, it was Jerry's episode, so that actually worked out. It was. So, But yeah, today we are going to cover mandatory arbitration in a slightly different context though. So we're not going to talk about why all plaintiffs lawyers hate it or, and we will we'll kind of give a brief reminder for anybody who may magically not be a lawyer listening to us today, but we want to talk about some actual, honest to God, new developments in this area, both in statutes that were passed a couple months ago that were a little slow to, to discuss. And then also some Supreme Court decisions that have come down over the last couple of weeks that shockingly are not actually horrible. Yeah, so let's start actually with the law, because I think that'll also give us an opportunity to recap a little bit about arbitration. So I'm going to put you on the spot. What's the new law that was just passed and Biden signed? So it, I guess it's still kind of new in, in our world, in the, in the legal world, right? Three or four months or two or three months yeah. is not really that long, though in, in media terms such as this, it's, it's an eternity. So in early March, late February, President Biden signed into law the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act of 2021, something that really rolls off the tongue. Of course. You know Congress passed it. <laughs> it titled it when it, it has a name like that. Well, you know, Democrats, and I say this, I guess, uh, pulling off the whatever, like I'm, I don't think it's a secret. I'm certainly not a right-leaning person. I just, as a as a pretty reliably left-leaning voter, I, I always find Democrats are not great at naming these things. So you know that's how this got passed under a Democratic president, because the name is terrible. 
I mean, I am left-leaning too, but I will say Democrats are not very good at a lot of things when it comes to politics. Though so this bill, I think, was bipartisan to get it It was, passed. though. It was. Yeah. I think, and, and we may have mentioned this when it happened, because I think, if memory serves, one of the big drivers of this law was that Fox News and its old, I don't remember if it was the CEO of, it's not Rupert Murdoch or his family, but it was Roger Ailes, and I don't remember his exact title, but he used to run Fox, and he... He was eventually pushed out of there justifiably because he had been a rampant sexual harasser before he died. And I'm pretty sure there were quite a few mandatory arbitration agreements and non-disclosure agreements. And so this was a scenario where everybody on the plaintiff's bar, right, we have all been fighting on behalf of people who are not powerful. I mean, sometimes they are white, but powerful white survivors of sexual harassment at a big right wing media conglomerate is I'm going to say probably one of the driving reasons this actually got done. But I think that's right, for sure. I think you're probably right about that. So in terms of what the law does, and correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is it, it allows the employees a choice if there is an allegation of sexual harassment or sexual assault of either going to arbitration or going to court. Correct. So it amends the Federal Arbitration Act, the FAA, which is the effectively ironclad law that the Roberts court until I guess this week or the last couple of weeks has never ruled against. Like, I think there was a time where I looked into this and it was like the FAA was undefeated in any challenge under the Roberts era. Like you just, if you brought up a mandatory arbitration case, the Supreme court, the Roberts court was going to rule that it was an enforceable arbitration provision. There just was no getting around it. I think that's right. Though I think we may, you and I may disagree a little bit about what these decisions mean for the FAA, at least for one of them. The other one I agree with you on, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking more in generalities right now. Like, it, yeah. I, early in my career, I remember there was a Rena Center decision I had to look up where I think that was even 9 nothing when it was a much less, I mean, it was still a not left-leaning court, but it was yeah. not 6-3 back then. It was a slightly different makeup of things. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still around. Antonin Scalia was still around. Souter was still around. No, Souter yeah. was gone. It was somebody else then. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. So the FAA is now there are some limitations to it in this very limited context, not racial harassment, not necessarily retaliation, but sexual harassment and sexual assault. So what do we need to know here? So the act gives the employees or the workers the option. It doesn't automatically invalidate it in its entirety, but it gives them the option to invalidate arbitration agreements and class or collective action waivers with respect to sexual assault and harassment claims. So that means in that very limited context, if there is a sexual harassment or assault claim that comes about and there's a mandatory ARB agreement in place, the employee has the option of saying, I'm not going to do that. I want to I take my chances and go to court. I want my opportunity to use the court system as it was ostensibly intended. The other part to keep in mind is that it applies to all claims that come about, they say, arise or accrue after March 3rd of 22, regardless of the date of the agreement. So in other words, the claims... I, I suspect that's going to be one of the areas where we get some litigation at some point is what does that mean? Yeah, I agree. I think the other place where we'll get it litigation too is how broadly is a, I think, and I think the courts actually have to decide this question, how broadly is it going to be decided that if someone adds a sexual harassment or sexual assault claim to other claims, what is actually, what choice does the employee have? That everything goes to court if they so choose? Or is it going to be piecemeal? Because I think the law is a little vague on the answer to that question, too. I think it's really vague. I mean, I think, you know, 
One of the reasons I always love FLSA litigation specifically is because the regulations on that law are so incredibly detailed and they even give you case, like if you go into them. So one of the things I see a lot is the Motor Carrier Act exemption, right? Like if you work in safety affecting activities, mechanics, truck drivers, loaders, they tend to be exempt from overtime pay requirements. But there are limits to that because the logistics industry has a lot of different parts. So like take, for example, refrigeration mechanics. There is an exemption to the exemption or an exception to the exemption where if you are only working on refrigeration units or the refrigeration component to a over-the-road truck, you don't fall into it. And the nice thing about that is like the definition of mechanics in the FLSA regs has case decisions where they walk through this and they cite to decisions where courts have walked through that. So that's I, this is, I'm going to get back to this, I promise. But that's why I like <laughs> it so much, because you have that, and it's a really robust statute in that way, and you know where you stand on a lot of things. Here, on right. the other hand, we have a very short law that has no regulations. It's three months old, and we have two main areas where we don't know how courts are going to operate. One being what Ahmed is saying, are you allowed to tack on other claims that are related to the sexual harassment or assault claim and keep those in open court? Or are you going to end up in scenarios where employers and employees are in split venues where you have in federal court or state court a sexual harassment or assault claim going on? And then behind closed doors and mandatory ARB, you've got everything else related to that case still going on there, too. And I think there's going to be a sort even let, let's assume hypothetically that it, it can be split. I'm not sure. I'm not sure employers are going to want it to be split because ultimately it's just going to be so much more expensive to be in multiple forums, having to do multiple versions of the same discovery, that it's not going to make much pragmatic sense. It's not. It's going to be cost prohibitive. And that's really the one claim that you're really going to be concerned about keeping quiet anyway as an employer. That's the thing people don't want. You don't want to be known as the company that has a me too problem. Right. Exactly. So to me, I, I think... At that point, what do you even get from being in two venues? The employer is the one who's really going to be eating the cost there. And I think the option is really awesome for employees because there are going to be employees who decide maybe initially for leverage, they'll try to argue they're going to go to court because in a public forum, like you said, a company may not want to be hit with a Me Too type lawsuit. But the employee may decide, I'd rather arbitrate because arbitration is in closed doors and I don't want some of this stuff to be out there publicly for my own self-being. So I think giving the employees that option is a great way to resolve some of the privacy concerns that people may have. I do, although I I think, you know, there's a reason why these cases go before a jury and why you want a jury, because you are, you want that threat of a punitive damages verdict. And listen, sometimes- you I agree with that. This is a Jane Doe or a John Doe plaintiff. I mean, I did archdiocese litigation for sex abuse for a few months early in my career. And those were always brought as John Doe lawsuits because you just don't, you know, depending on what community you're in, or even if not, you just don't want your name on a lawsuit saying, hey, I was assaulted by somebody all the time. So yeah, I agree with all that. You know, I, 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 I encourage yeah. people to go back and listen to the Jennifer Mondino episode and drive traffic to that one if they want to hear why. Yeah. So I think the flexibility is good. I think most likely you're right. Employees are going to choose the public forum, but they're definitely going to try to leverage that in any settlement negotiations. Yeah, I think so. But I mean, I think Listen, however we got here on this statute and whatever the limits and frustrating sort of nuances to it that exist, like good news is this is one group that now will have access to the court system as they should that didn't before. And I think that's objectively a good thing. I agree with that completely. So let's transition then. We had two Supreme Court cases come out recently. The first one was Morgan v. Sundance. 
And even though I think Sundance Inc. is a company name, it really involves a, to a large degree, a company that's near and dear to my heart, Taco Bell, the franchisee owned by Sundance. I'm a big, big Taco Bell fan. So employment practices aside, I do think they have good food. Was Taco Bell, I mean, Burger King, McDonald's, and Taco Bell, I think their definition of food is already dubious. Which, and maybe this is all of them, was Taco Bell the one that there was the, when we were like high school age, they always used to joke or the, the rumor was the meat was not. Yeah, I think that's true. It wasn't real meat. I think Taco Bell does dollar for dollar still have the best value of any of the restaurants. My senior year quote was your Kiro Taco Bell. So I am a little biased on this topic. That is not in your yearbook. It is. Oh my God, I'm it. Yeah, I really like Taco Bell. <laughs> All right, so nice. let's talk about Morgan versus Sundance. Yeah, let's talk about before we get on a food tangent. So in Morgan versus Sundance, this is kind of an interesting case, both strategically and kind of what the court decided. So Morgan is a former employee or an hourly employee at a Taco Bell franchisee owned by Sundance and had brought a claim subject to a arbitration clause under the Federal Arbitration Act. But Sundance did not initially compel it to arbitration. The company first filed a motion to dismiss, they tried to mediate, and then they tried to arbitrate. And the question then began, began, if they tried to arbitrate at that stage, can they make the argument that they should be allowed to do so because there is no prejudice to the employee? And in a surprisingly majority ruling, I think it was either eight to one or nine to nine zero, the court held that prejudice is not a standard to look at to determine whether or not someone has waived their right to arbitrate a claim under the FAA. And that's a pretty big deal going back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of how the Supreme Court, especially under the Roberts Court, has ruled on Federal Arbitration Act claims. I mean, I I think, again, objectively good outcome. The employees get their day in court that they deserve. The employer justifiably doesn't get credit for sitting on their hands waiting to see. I mean, we don't know. I haven't read the decision in a couple of days and I just don't remember if they went into why there was a delay, if somebody like forgot they had the option or there was a discussion of whether they were just sort of waiting yeah. to see how things went. My understanding was I think the company was trying to have it both ways. I think they wanted to get the benefits of the court proceedings. And then depending on how that went, then go to arbitration. I don't know if that's going to be ever on the record. But they did do stuff, I think, procedurally, at least initially, before trying to compel it to arbitration. And that would be the only reason why. I think they probably knew all along they had an arbitration clause and just kind of wanted to see if they could get their motion to dismiss to, to work. Yeah, I mean, I think, right, because then they're not paying the arbitrator to make that decision for them, right? Like they've at least, they've at least got a federal judge doing it and they're only paying their lawyers. Well, I mean, I think it's a good outcome, not as broad as we would love on everything, but at least it is one limit to the arbitration process. So, I mean, is there any practical outcome other than just move to our, compel ARB quickly if you have a clause? Or I think the, the main takeaway I have from this is contract law defenses can still apply. So waiver, I think, could now be or will be a viable defense in enforcement of a motion to compel. I think companies are if they want to arbitrate claims, are going to be much more likely to do so earlier. And I think there is going to be then litigation about how long is too long to wait before moving to arbitrate. As I put you on the spot here, there's an equity kind of flavor to this decision too, right? Like an unclean hands or a, it, would it be latches, I guess would be the right to... Yeah, or just straight up waiver. Yeah, I think it's going to be something roped in within all of those terms of just, you know, 
how quickly does the company need to act to get it into arbitration? And I think that's going to be, there is going to be some litigation over that. I don't know if there's ever going to be a bright line on that or not. Maybe there can be like in a context of arbitration, so long as you do it as your first thing you file in court, that's sufficient. Anything outside of that, maybe it's too far. Um, I don't know how much discretion courts are going to give companies moving forward, but I think that is going to be kind of the next wave of litigation after this decision. See, I could see like answering the complaint being or moving to dismiss at that point being the moment of waiver, at least as one bright line rule, right? Because at that point, you've effectively submitted jurisdiction. Yeah, I agree with that. But, you know, I wonder... You know, the nice thing about federal courts, right, is we have access to the dockets. They're all public now. PACER is all under one nice uniform. We all got our million emails from the Northern District for those of us who do federal practice, right? But, you know, there's a docket you'll have handy now if you find yourself in that situation where you can go back and look and say, well, what led to this outcome? Maybe we can draw a nice comparative set of facts to our case and see if we can get the law applied here. And I guess one thing we should clarify I don't know if the court actually went out as far as to say that it was waived. I think instead they wanted the A circuit to f- determine that, but they did say prejudice is not a valid defense to determining waiver. And I think part of the rationale here was that Sundance had first filed a motion to dismiss the claim because they thought it was duplicative of other pending. And this was an FSLSA claim. So they tried to argue it was duplicative of other FILSA claims that were pending. When that didn't work, they tried to mediate and they did settle with named plaintiffs. They just weren't able to settle with Morgan. And that's when they tried to send it to arbitration. So I think what the court really wants, the A circuit, or I guess in this case, eventually the circuit court to figure out is, is that waiver? I guess we just have to take the victories as we get them on this. Um, <laughs> yeah. And just be glad that they didn't do something horrible with it. Yeah, I agree. And I think overall, to your point earlier, this will allow, I think, more equitable type defenses, and that'll become more and more common in these types of cases. I I guess it just sort of goes back to one of the early things you and I talked about is like having as broad a tool belt as you can in our area and trying not to just think about what we do is just employment, and that's the only thing. Like we are lawyers first and foremost, and there are other skills and areas of law we have that can be applicable, and it never hurts. I mean, don't go out and make bad law, but it never hurts to be creative and try to remember what you learned elsewhere. I think it, yep. it's like the kid who only plays football growing up or the kid who plays a lot of sports and gets muscle memory of different types. Like they always say nowadays, like, you know, the better athletes, the ones who go pro tend to be the ones who've like got a more diverse background. And I mean, they are naturally gifted obviously, but also have that more diverse background like that. And Justice Kagan wrote this opinion and there is a line in here that I think will be helpful in other contexts too. She writes that, the FAA's policy favoring arbitration does not authorize federal courts to invent special arbitration preferring procedural rules. And so I think the way, and to your point of building a toolbox, the way people will use this tool in other contexts is just to argue, look, if it's not in the FAA, we shouldn't be creating new policies or procedures to allow companies to get into arbitration. Agreed. So, I mean, I think if nothing else, it's at least an interesting decision. Yeah, for sure. Which then yeah. takes us to our third case. This is Southwest Airlines versus Saxon. Another company actually that I do really like. I almost exclusively fly Southwest. I think they're generally great, but maybe not in this context. So I don't know if we're that far along from a discovery standpoint. Mm-hmm. So in this case, the allegation is another FELSA case. The allegation was that a 
cargo worker who was not properly being paid overtime. And so the question, and I think the court actually ended up disagreeing with both the employee and Southwest on this one, was whether or not Section 1 of the FAA exempts the worker or not under the exemption procedures. So the court had previously ruled in Circuit City, which was, I think, a case in the mid-90s, that Section 1 of the FAA only applies to transportation workers, and that transportation workers were explicitly exempt from mandatory arbitration or explicitly exempt from the Federal Arbitration Act. And so here the question was, would that apply to a cargo worker and how narrowly or broadly? And when I saw that it was eight nothing, I knew it was not going to be an opinion on recusal. And then when I saw that Clarence Thomas had written it, I got really nervous. Yeah, I understand why. It's actually also for people who are grammar nerds, it's an interesting decision to read because a lot of it really just is just interpreting the plain language of a statute that to your point earlier is not very, it doesn't clearly set out a lot of these things. So there's different statutory canons the court is explaining that they're going to use in this context and what they've done in the past. And the phrase transportation workers is not actually in the statute. It's just something the court is interpreting within the statute based on how Congress wrote the law. What's also interesting about this now that I am remembering my con law class from about 11, 12 years ago is this being interstate commerce, we're now talking commerce clause, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Clarence Thomas had and probably still has the most, at least as I understood it, conservative view of how the commerce clause ought to operate. Because to go down the nerd rabbit hole, if folks will remember, the Affordable Care Act was passed under the Commerce Clause, at least in part. I mean, it was upheld under the tax, uh, under Congress's taxing authority under the Constitution. But remember, it was it was this long line of case law from after the Lochner Court when Roosevelt threatens to expand the court and suddenly they start not striking down all of his New Deal legislation, right? And we get uh, Wickard versus Filburn, the old uh, farmer with wheat in getting into interstate commerce decision that leads to the ever-expanding commerce clause up until the 90s and early aughts when you get the first limits to it with Gonzalez versus Reich and U.S. Morrison and the Lopez decision too. Apt, yeah. yeah. Um, but Clarence Thomas, I think if my, I could be wrong on this, I have to go back and look. I'm almost positive he thought Wickard versus Filburn was wrongfully decided and was too in too broadly interpretive of the commerce clause and was thrilled when they limited it in those two de- in those few decisions and then so anytime he's writing on the commerce clause it makes me a little nervous but well and here he disagreed with both sides the employee surprise. yeah the employee wanted to define everything a little bit broader so the employee's argument was that the phrase class of workers of all airline well, let me re- let me back up for a second. The employee wanted the court to define class of workers within the context of Section 1 of the FAA to mean all airline employees who carry out the customary work of an airline. So it wouldn't just be cargo loaders specifically. It could be anyone who does the work of an airline because an airline is operating with an interstate commerce. Justice Thomas disagreed with that interpretation. He basically created a line, in his opinion, a rule or a right line of you must actively be doing stuff that's more interstate commerce. So putting cargos on plane meets his test. Now on the, on the flip side, Southwest wanted to define it much more narrowly. They wanted to say literally only the people who are physically moving the goods or people across foreign or international boundaries. So pilots, ship crews, locomotive engineers, et cetera, would be the only ones covered under the exemption. And he disagreed with that. He thought that was too narrow. So 
in some ways, I actually think his reasoning here makes sense and how he split the baby in, in a sense of I do think it's very too narrow to say only pilots are the ones engaging in interstate commerce. At the same time, I, can, I see the employee's argument of, well, if you're kind of doing backdoor, backroom type stuff for an airline company, you probably are engaging in interstate commerce too. I mean, it just sort of makes me, reminds me of how arbitrary these things really are at some level. And as much as we say, oh, this is, yep. this is you know, first of all, we know that stare decisis is probably not going to mean much in the next couple of weeks when they, yes. the same court starts ruling on some more big ticket items. But I don't, I don't know really practically speaking what the real difference is at that level. I think it's just something he decided to me. I kind of agree with that. I don't know how you kind of determine a distinction between what the employee is saying and what he ultimately decides. I, I do think Southwest was probably going a little bit too far in trying to define this, and I get why for their purposes. I, I would do that with this court. I, if, right. I were, if I were on the employer's side and thought I could limit my exposure yeah. to liability, I would absolutely take that shot as a, at the Roberts court. What, what do you have to lose? The chances that this comes down the wrong way are quite slim. No, I agree. But now we do have two back-to-back decisions where it was, this was an 8-0 with Justice Barrett recusing herself because she was involved. And I think the Seventh Circuit decision on this issue where the court first decided the waiver issue or more of an equitable line of reasoning and then decided this issue effectively in favor of the employee. Well, and then the other argument, the theoretical argument was, so Amazon and Uber filed amicus briefs, I think, in support of the 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 losing side here on behalf of the Southwest side. So the article that you and I looked at on this suggested that it could mean that last mile delivery drivers for Amazon and and Uber Eats or whatever that is are engaged in interstate commerce and entitled to FAA exemptions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah even if they don't cross state lines, because the argument is, well, they're engaged in interstate commerce. And, and to go back to the commerce clause again, then, right? Like there was case law at one point in time, and I think it's still good law that like intrastate commerce of goods that in the aggregate are going to affect interstate commerce do count. I don't remember if that's Wickard versus Filburn or a different decision. So that would certainly jive with decades and decades of commerce clause decisions, but I just don't. I'm a bit of a glass half empty, not a bit. I'm very much a negative person. I I always just assume this court will find a way to do what I think to be the wrong thing if given the opportunity. So I I, I don't see these as like uh, opening the floodgates to to picking away at the FAA. I think these were very specific circumstances. No, I think that's true. And I think the circumstances were in a lot of ways very similar. It's really just if the FAA doesn't say it, we're not going to read into it. And so on the first issue in the case involving waiver, Justice Kagan's decision there is pretty clear, which is, look, the FEA doesn't have prejudice as a standard, so we're not going to create one. And here, it's really just interpreting what, who, what type of workers would be involved in interstate commerce. And so, again, that's the statutory interpretation more than anything else. And it kind of goes back to your point from earlier in the episode, which is, we just got to draft these things better. <laughs> I mean, if, if Congress wants to exempt specific people, they should say which people they want to exempt, and it would clarify a lot of these issues. Yeah, but look, I mean, I guess if there's a takeaway today, it's that we've got three things that have happened, so to speak. One law was passed and two Supreme Court decisions that have, in theory, given slightly more access to justice to certain groups of people. And I think that's a good thing, if not a complete victory. I agree 100%. Well, the, the, the statute's a, a, a nice victory, I guess. That is an... It's a really nice victory. It's, it's nice because it's going to allow a lot of people, I think, a better outcome, flexibility, and 
it's just, I mean, I'm in favor of bipartisan stuff. And so it's always good that a law somehow got passed through Congress. I see that's an area where we disagree. I always think when something gets passed on a bipartisan basis, that means it must be really bad because if they can both agree on it, it means something, yeah. something bad is going well, on. But, but or the law was really necessary, <laughs> which is rare. Yeah. That, that doesn't always mean much. No, that's true. What, one other point I guess I'll make in this and then we'll let everybody go here. To go back to the first law, I was in a mediation one time with a retired federal judge, and it was a sexual harassment case where there were some concerns about liability like and damages, but the conduct was incredibly egregious. I mean, really, really egregious, and there was notice. It was just a question of, like, how far did damages extend? And, you know, being the young, eager associate that I was at the time, tagging along with the partner I was with, I was well-prepared. I was, you know, knee-deep in this case. I knew the facts in and out, and had all this case law saved up and all this evidence ready to go and exhibits. And like the judge came in and was like, we were talking and he stands up to get up. And I'm like, wait, is there any reason for me to even bother arguing the facts or law today? He goes, nope, it's a mandatory ARP case. I'll, you know, I'm going to do what I can, but like it's mandatory ARP. It just is what it is, you know? And it was like, look, he did a good job on the mediation case got settled, but that never went away from me. It was like, my God, like that, that mirror, that mirror fact of arbitration being here has created an artificial ceiling to a case like that. So this does make a difference for litigants. I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. No, for sure. I mean, it goes back to what you said earlier. Like you can get better punitive damages in front of a jury than in front of a single person. So the only thing I would caveat this with is, again, Jerry's episode where I think he makes a good argument for arbitration. It makes sense in certain circumstances. I think it's always going to be circumstance specific. And so there can be a way arbitration is better for people. I mean, one thing I'll say right now is because of COVID, I think the system is pretty slow right now from a judicial standpoint. And so if you want to get somewhere faster, arbitration may be a better route. Yeah. Well, thank you to everybody at home for listening. Amit, thank you for taking time out of your European trip to do this. <laughs> no worries. No worries. I'm excited to be able to do this anywhere across the world. So that's a kind of a nice perk of COVID. Only like maybe. We do a where in the world is Carmen San Diego thing for your next next episode when you're traveling. We'll just see where in the world is Amit and. Yeah, I don't know if I'll play that. I may not be traveling for a bit. (laughs) Pay for that music. Oh, probably actually. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, thanks to everybody at home for listening through this. Please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.